Hello, everybody, and welcome to Lighting the Pipes. Thank you very much for joining us here today, as we're going to do a first for the show. We're going to review a comic book, a graphic novel. My name is Scott Powell, and as always, I'm joined by my reader-in-arms, Joshua Taylor. Good to have you here, Hello. pal, on this October day. Good to have you also bringing something new to the show with this episode. Yeah, I think in terms of detective fiction, uh, one of the most famous comic book characters that would fit into that genre of, de of detective fiction would be Batman, the most mm -hmm. famous vigilante superhero of them all. I mean, who hasn't heard of Batman? 1939 first appearance, huh? That's right. Yep. Um, He's much, much older than the Spider-Man that uh, is probably more popular than him in today's world and parlance. Yeah, Batman still has his longevity, though, you know. Mm-hmm from my view of things anyways i've always ever since like my adolescence early adulthood i've been more of a marvel person i i marvel to me is like superheroes who are actually real people and have their own real lives and the story the storylines focus on that they focus on that conflict they focus on you know progressive ideas and you know the changes in society like marvel is all about that whereas dc comics which started out, you know, decades before Marvel Comics did in, in the late 30s, you know, with like uh, Detective mm -hmm. Comics started out with like Action Comics with uh, Superman and then later on to counter Superman as another hero for the DC label, Bob Kane and Bill Finger. They came up with Batman, even though Bob Kane takes a lot of the credit for it. Um, but Batman was in the same vein as some like pulpy vigilantes like the Shadow or the Falcon it was a different take than, you know, the usual superhero archetype that Superman had obviously, you know, fostered. And he's endured for so long, you know, in, in our pop culture. I mean, Spider-Man, you know, to me, didn't really start coming back until like the late 90s, early yeah, 2000s, right. I think, where that's people right. got into Spider-Man again because of the Raimi films and mm -hmm. cartoon series and whatnot. But Batman, I mean, has gone through so much evolution since his inception Oh, sorry, since yeah. his conception, that he's always been there in terms of pop culture. And even though like he's part of the DC pantheon with Superman, Wonder Woman, and the Justice League and all that, he's also kind of in his own world at the same time. And I think that makes him more accessible as a comic book character than having to read, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of issues just to understand one big story arc, you know? Like, Batman was always in his own world all the time. Whereas like DC with the Justice League characters and Marvel particularly, which is always have stories set in New York and all their characters walking in and out of each other's strip comic strips all the time, you know, walking from panel to panel, from issue to issue, from title to title. There was always, you know, that multiverse or that story, that that universe of characters um, in the greater DC and particularly in Marvel. But Batman, even though he takes part in that universe, he has his Gotham City as his, you know, hunting grounds. He has his own a very distinct rogues gallery. There are so many artists and writers that have given their own interpretation of Batman. We've seen a pulpy Batman. We've seen a more kid-friendly Batman. We've seen the Adam West campy Batman. And then we've seen, you know, the Nolan Batman films, which are heavily inspired also by Frank Miller's Batman uh, the one that him and Dennis O'Neill helped take out of the camp. And here we are, you know, with Batman Year One by Frank Miller. So I think, you know, it's a good it's a good place to start as any if we're going to investigate uh, the mystery genre through the comics medium. 
Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, I think it's great. It's really inspired choice here. Not because, as you said, Batman is something unique or, you know, kind of coterie. Not at all. I mean, Batman has not just evolved, but survived and redefined himself through the years. But I, I think for the show, because it's just such a deviation from what we've started out at the last, you know, we started with Holmes and then we went to Marlowe and then we went to Singular Reads. And, and as part of that, now we're bringing in uh, graphic novels and the, the work of Frank Miller, which I think is just great. So well done to you, because this was totally your baby bringing this one on board. And the recommendation has been really welcome. I I hope listeners enjoy our discussion of Batman Year One. I certainly enjoyed doing this. Uh, and uh, yeah, I think I think our pipes will, will be really interesting when we sit down to light them. Um, the format of today's show is very similar to the format of all of our other book reviews. We're going to have a bit of information, some fast facts. Josh has, Josh has got a, a pre-recorded uh, bit of research done on Frank Miller. And then I'm going to share a summary and then we're going to talk it out in our pipes. So listen, pal, um, we got a lot coming up and lighten the pipes this season. We've already made a fantastic start in to it. I know you've got an LTP noir in the works, but if if you're happy to just kind of leave that stuff to the side, uh, I'm interested in, you know, putting on the cape and diving into the streets of Gotham if you're ready to go. Yeah, let's go. Batman first debuted in Detective Comics number 27, published on March 30th, 1939. He was created by artist Bob Kane and writer Bill Finger. With the tremendous success of Superman, DC wanted another hero to sell more comic books. So Bob Kane made some preliminary scribblings and presented them to Bill Finger. Now, despite a thin domino mask and two Leonardo da Vinci-inspired bat wings, He was very similar to the design of DC Comics' Superman. This was not the Batman design that most of the world is familiar with. So Bill Finger suggested a cowl to replace the domino mask and to lose the wings in place of a cape and give Batman some gloves and remove the color red completely and replace it with some darker shades and darker colors. Kane and Finger gave Batman an alter ego, Bruce Wayne, a millionaire playboy who was orphaned as a child when his parents were gunned down in a mugging gone wrong. The name Bruce was derived from the Scottish patriot and king Robert the Bruce. The name Wayne had similar roots. Anthony Wayne was a son of liberty, a signer of the Declaration of Independence. Because of this traumatic event, Bruce Wayne wears the cape and cowl of the Batman in his crusade against the underworld of Gotham City. Gotham, by the way, was intended to be a fictional hyper- realistic version of New York City, or so it's been debated. In terms of future world building, storytelling, and style, Kane and Finger pulled from a deeper well of inspiration. Kane looked to radio serials, movie serials, masked heroes like Scarlet Pimpernel and Zorro, as well as The Shadow and The Phantom, not to mention the Pulp Fiction from Glossies such as The Black Mask, which were popular during this time. Finger loved the crime detective genre and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes, so the title of The Dark Knight Detective is pretty apt. The pulp fiction of the period would influence early Batman so much that this early iteration would sometimes maim and even kill some of the denizens of criminality who had the misfortune of crossing his path. At one point, Batman even used a gun. 
Wayne's base of operations was the vast estate he inherited from his parents, Wayne Manor. Here, he had the undying loyalty and service of the Wayne family butler, Alfred Pennyworth, a character that would take on the role of mentor, partner in vigilante crime and surrogate father for Bruce and other members of the Bat family, such as Robin, Batgirl, etc., Batman worked out of the Batcave, an underground cavern located deep beneath Wayne Manor. This would experience several iterations of design over the course of Batman's run and in other media. Everyone had their own interpretation of the Batcave. Given all of this, Detective Comics number 27 made great sales and Batman intrigued the comic book reading audience. I should state that not all those foundations of the Batman mythos were established by this issue, just the basics, costume, alter ego, and his mission. People were excited, and Batman received his own title, called Batman of all things, in 1940. These early issues of Batman in Detective Comics and the solo title Batman continued to build the character. Next came his utility belt, followed by the Batarang, his boomerang weapon, and then we have the Batplane. I mentioned Alfred already, but throw in Commissioner Gordon as well. Batman was building a vast arsenal and allies in his fight against crime and corruption. Speaking of allies, in Detective Comics number 38, Robin, Batman's sidekick, was introduced to the world. Finger conceived him as a Watson to Batman's homes. Like Bruce Wayne slash Batman Dick Grayson, Robin was orphaned by the actions of a criminal. With his domino mask, yellow and red types, and cape, he was a willing participant in Batman's fight against evil. Sales doubled. Going back to the first issue of the solo title Batman, readers were also introduced to iconic Batman villains such as the Joker and Catwoman. So the mythos is pretty much established by this point. Gradually, as Batman's popularity reflected in a growing circulation demand for his stories, the editorial decisions began to skew a general younger audience. Robin's edition being evident of this. DC editor Whitney Ellsworth mandated that Batman could no longer take a life or use a gun. In concert with the introduction of Robin, the character continued to soften in comparison to how he behaved and looked under Kane and Finger originally. Now, Kane and Finger still worked on the character as it progressed through the war and even the post-war years, uh, to a certain extent anyways, but Batman also appeared in stories teaming up with Superman in the title World Finest Comics. Later, Batman innovators Dick Sprang and Jerry Robinson, well, they started out here, and that's how they eventually attached themselves to the Batman run as well. So Robinson would pencil Batman and his world in the late 40s and throughout the 50s and beyond. Next to Neil Adams, his renderings of Batman and his rogues gallery are by far the most prominent in popular culture. Go to a department store toy section and look for any non-movie-related Batman merchandise, and the art of Robinson and Neil Adams can easily be found. Post-war Batman was stuck on the same editorial train as, as other superheroes, and also with the DC pantheon, which now included Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, the DC Trinity, uh, and of course the Flash, Green Arrow, and the Green Lantern, just to name a few. Those characters were headed for a bland destination. The social commentary and violence were being drained from the writing and replaced with a Batman who was a good big brother or even paternal figure to Robin, a general all-around good citizen. Not that there is anything wrong with that, but this cheerier Batman wasn't enough for the crackdown on comic books in the early 50s, where fundamentalists and temperance groups, fired up by Dr. Frederick Wortham, the writer of Seduction of the Innocent, he was an uh, eminent psychologist who deemed comic books responsible for child delinquency and moral perversion. Wortham singled out Batman in particular, alluding to a suggestive homosexual pedagogical relationship between Batman and Robin. 
which was not the case, but witch hunters are going to witch hunt. Basically, Batman and comics like it were the tool of the devil. These groups went after crime fiction and pulp magazines and alien and horror comics, not just superheroes. In order to survive oblivion, the majority of comic book publishers, DC included, came up with a committee called the Comic Books Code Authority. That white cloudy icon that you might recall seeing on your comic book back in the day. If you go to a supermarket or convenience store, picked up a, a comic book title, you may have noticed that fluffy cloud with the approved by the Comic Books Code Authority on it, right? So similar to the Motion Picture Production Code, aka the Hayes Office of the film industry, comic books had it to follow censorship rules, as if they were going to survive the moralistic blacklist of the Eisenhower era and beyond. As a result, superhero comics floundered. Sales plummeted because the stories weren't exciting anymore. They were too sanitary and reminiscent of family comic book strips. Batman lovers would find their kicks elsewhere, whether it was watered down in film noir or in hyperviolent crime novels from authors like Mickey Spillane. It wasn't until Marvel Comics appeared on the scene in the early 60s that everything changed. The 60s was, as we know it, a period of social upheaval, a progressive time that allowed Marvel to capture the zeitgeist of that age with its very relatable human superheroes. DC survived the 50s, with its pantheon as Justice League of Heroes, Batman included. It still appealed, but it seemed bland and stereotypical compared to the metaphorical figures of Marvel, where Stan Lee and co. excelled at captivating reading audiences with their weird but cool-looking heroes, who acted more like everyday people, and, outside of dealing with the supervillain of the week, dealt with real-life problems. Now, Batman was arguably the most relatable of DC's lineup, simply due to how grounded he was. Batman was the closest thing DC had to Marvel, just with a more conservative lean. It was around this time that Julius Schwartz was assigned to the Batman titles in order to reshape Batman to something more contemporary. First thing Schwartz did was start fresh by hiring a new artist, Carmine Infantino. Infantino was a DC heavy hitter since the late 50s, having created the Silver Age Flash Barry Allen and the Black Canary, among others. He came up with a new Batmobile design and made tweaks to the original costume, one in particular a yellow ellipse behind the bat insignia. All this 50s silliness like aliens or characters like Ace the Bat-Hound or Batmite or Batgirl, uh, Batwoman, what have you, they were taken out, including Elford. Elford was actually not just taken out, but he was killed off. However, like most deaths in comic bookdom, this wouldn't last. For this renewal, Elford was replaced by Aunt Harriet Cooper, a relative of Martha Wayne's side of the family, and lived with Bruce and Dick Grayson's Robin at the Wayne estate. These editorial changes were followed by the debut of the Batman TV series on ABC TV on January 12, 1966. It aired until March 14, 1968. And... It was incredibly campy, to say the least. Childhood me loved it. Though I doubted at the time, you know, they realized they were making camp, which is a definition of camp, I suppose. Batman purists may have hated it, but it launched Batman into the pulp culture stratosphere. There was bad everything, and it kept Batman alive. In this campy era, Batman had a circulation of 900,000. The gimmick could only last so long, unfortunately, and the ratings dropped, and ABC eventually dropped the series. In my opinion, it was probably because of annoying Aunt Harriet, and, you know, maybe they shouldn't have killed off Elford in the comic books in the first place, even though Elford was present on the TV show, but still. Anyways, Elford came back, so. In the aftermath of the cancellation, Batman sales dropped dramatically. What would save Batman this time? Find out next paragraph. Same bat time, same bat channel. 
Without a doubt, Batman's first saviors, at least in thematic faithful interpretation of the character, were Dennis O'Neill and Neil Adams. In 1969, uh, Dennis O'Neill, or Denny O'Neill, and Neil Adams took over the Batman title and worked their magic in casting off the camp war of the 60s. They wanted to return Batman to his roots. This would be sort of a mantra that all artists and writers coming to the Batman title would say, it seems, but it's more or less true. Uh, working with inker Dick Gordano, with Julius Schwartz prominent in the background, they regained the aesthetic and style of Kane and Finger. Essentially, Batman the Dark Knight detective. But sales did not improve, even with new villains like Raj al Ghul or the new renderings of the Batman rogues gallery. From 77 to 78, another revival was attempted by Stephen Englehart and artist Marshall Rogers uh, via the title Detective Comics, but sales dwindled. So Batman and other DC titles would continue to experience diminishing returns whilst the Marvel juggernauts steamrolled through the late 70s and early 80s. Around this time, a young artist quickly rose in the ranks of Marvel and his name was Frank Miller, and he was a man who would breathe new life into the Dark Knight detective. But first we'll return to the state of DC as it was in the, in the early 80s. John Byrne, a prominent writer and artist from Marvel, was offered a shot at DC's marquee title, Superman. Byrne's run began to get DC out of doldrums, but it still wasn't enough. For an intertwining comic book universe running since the late 1930s, continuity can get easily tangled by this point. So a new reader to comics would pick up a random Superman or Green Lantern and be completely unable to digest it. So important was the connected universe and reliance on back issues and relationships to the titles. So Marvel was also having this problem, but DC had 20-some years on Marvel, so they had a lot to clean up. So the DC editorial staff saw that something had to be done to bring DC back to prominence, something to bring new readers into the fold. Crisis on Infinite Earths was a 12-issue limited series by Marv Wolfman and George Perez. It contained the entire DC pantheon, Batman included, and they were duking it out in a cosmic battle involving a multiverse. It was created to resolve continuity errors in the DC universe. Wolfman and Perez planned to re relaunch every DC title with a new first issue. Despite being a more grounded hero, Batman would also be part of this reset button situation. So now we go to Frank Miller. Frank Miller was born January 27, 1957, in Olney, Maryland, raised in Montpelier, Vermont. Mother was a nurse and father was a carpenter electrician, and they all came from an Irish Catholic background. If you're familiar with Miller at all, you'll know that Irish Catholic backgrounds are very important to some of his storytelling. Now, Miller loved comics growing up, and essentially he worked to make comic books his life and career. He also loved old pulp fiction, film noir, and Japanese manga. These influences would permeate his writing and his art, and would make him the perfect fit for the complex revival of the Caped Crusader. As a budding artist and writer in the industry, he managed to get Neil Adams' attention when he moved to New York City in the mid-70s. With only a few samples of his style to submit, Miller allowed Adams to critique his work and accepted various informal lessons from him. Adams was impressed with what he saw and recommended Miller to an imprint called Gold Key Comics. Small work with the Western publishing label led to a brief first tenure at DC, where editor Joe Orlando wasn't that impressed. But art director Vinnie Coletta saw the same potential in Miller as Adams, and he gave him a chance. Uh, so Miller did art for various titles under DC, various titles, not major titles, I should say, and 
indicating that Miller wasn't getting far in DC thanks to Orlando locking him out of the big titles. Luckily, Marvel was in need of an artist for odd jobs and fill-in work. So Miller's first work was penciling the 17-page Master Assassin, Part 3, for issue 18 of Marvel's adaptation of John Carter, Warlord of Mars, and that was published in November 1978. Next, Miller penciled for the spectacular Spider-Man 27-28 in 1979, and this was significant because another Marvel hero featured in this story, Daredevil. Daredevil had debuted in 1963. The blind lawyer turned acrobatic superhero with radar vision was a premise, but by now had become stagnant with poor sales. Miller recognized this could be it for Daredevil, but he saw potential with the character. After all, Marvel's current bestseller X-Men hadn't had great sales from its debut, which was also in 1963. Miller would do that for Daredevil, as Len Wein and Chris Claremont did for X-Men. It was in the stars. Longtime Daredevil artist Gene Colan had left the title and his spot was there for the taking. So Miller pursued staff writer Joe Duffy, someone who had mentored him since he started with Marvel, to convince Marvel's infamous editor-in-chief, I say infamous, notorious, perhaps, he got the job done, but he was tough on his crew, let's just say that. Shooter let Miller take a stab at the waning Daredevil, and his debut was number 158 in May 1979. In this issue, uh, Roger McKenzie was continuing with an ongoing arc with Black Widow, and... Mackenzie, of course, being the writer, Klaus Jansen was the inker. Miller's symmetrical but distinct artwork, it drew acclaim, people noticed, but Daredevil was on the verge of cancellation, so even Miller's stark, bold aesthetic couldn't bring up the sales, which plummeted further. Miller did not like Mackenzie's script, and though his output did not waver, he was unhappy being aboard a sinking ship. Enter Batman vet Denny O'Neill, who joined the Marvel team as a new editor. He read a backstory Miller had wrote on his own when he realized Miller's unhappiness on the Daredevil title. He was impressed with Miller's script, seeing what Miller could do for Daredevil, but Mackenzie was still penning Daredevil, and Miller had to play the game. So O'Neill prodded Miller along by giving him another series to work on. Miller passed with flying colors, and Mackenzie was out, and Miller was in. In January 1989, issue 168, Frank Miller began Daredevil as writer and penciler. This was the debut of Elektra, a ninja-trained Greek woman with a connection to the past of Daredevil's alter ego, Matt Murdock, and the rest was history. Miller fused a martial arts background of Daredevil's fighting style as well as other characters from Dee Dee's past, his mentor Stick, and the mysterious rival ninja clan called The Hand. Like O'Neill on Batman, Miller brought darker stories and thematic elements to Daredevil. The epitome of this was Daredevil 181, where longtime Daredevil antagonist Bullseye kills Elektra, leading to Daredevil almost killing Bullseye in revenge for the death of his enemy slash former lover. Miller's initial Daredevil run came to an end with issue 191 in February of 1983. Miller continued to work with Marvel, and his Daredevil work would see him do fill-in work for other major titles like Amazing Spider-Man Annual. He even worked with X-Men writer Phenom Chris Claremont in fall-December 1982 on the Wolverine miniseries. Miller was able to expand on Wolverine slash Logan's character in an epic story set in Japan with Wolverine's past and old lover putting him between warring Yakuza. The manga fan in Miller dove in head first. After Elektra Handark and Daredevil, Miller was more than happy to handle this story with a brand of hard-boiled gritty realism. Combining with his salvaging of Daredevil and his work on the Wolverine miniseries, Miller was a rising star in Marvel and in the overall comic book industry. 
His first work with DC was Ronin in 1983. It lasted six issues and was his first creator-owned title, meaning that it wasn't a character owned by someone else or created by somebody else. It was his own invention. Having established relationships with both Marvel and DC, particularly with editor Denny O'Neill, Miller was at the back of everyone's mind on who could assist with DC's reset following the crisis of On Infinite Earths. So that leads us to 1986, the year of the graphic novel. Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons' satirical epic miniseries Watchmen had begun an era of adult-oriented storytelling in comic books that embraced longtime fans and cross over to non-comic book reading audiences. It was published on prestige format, meaning it was square bound, not stapled. It was published on heavy stock paper with cardstock instead of glossy paper covers. From the success of Watchmen, an editorial objective for a great reset of DC continuity, the ground was ripe for Miller's The Dark Knight Returns. Dick Gordano, DC's Batman group editor, was promoted to the editorial director for DC as a whole. Gordano hired Miller to create The Dark Knight Returns. Gordano and Miller worked out the plot, and it took Miller four or five drafts to get where they wanted. Regarding The Dark Knight Returns, Miller said that he was partly inspired by Dirty Harry and Sudden Impact, in particular because Dirty Harry returns to work after a long time convalescence. For the design of The Dark Knight Returns in particular, he came up with a 16-panel grid for its pages, meaning each page was composed of either a combination of 16 panels or anywhere between 16 and one panel per page. Miller and Gordano fell out over disagreements about deadlines. Miller wanted to work at his own pace, independent-minded to the bone. It was eventually a long-plotted trilogy, followed by The Dark Knight Strikes Again and The Dark Knight 3, The Master Race. None were as successful as the original, I should say. The premise is a 55-year-old Batman comes out of retirement to deal with the violent street gangs that have taken over Gotham, combating the police force and the U.S. government, um, including Superman. It sold well. It's considered one of the greatest comic book stories written, so there's that. And just a more mature writing in comic books in general. Now, another added benefit for Frank Miller is that he met his wife in this period. In 1986, he worked with Lynn Varley, um, the inker, on The Dark Knight Returns, and, well, the record struck in some capacity because they were married, although they divorced in 2005. Miller returned to Marvel and Daredevil. Denny O'Neill was currently serving as writer on Daredevil and would soon be leaving to return to DC Comics, so Daredevil editor Ralph Macchio, seeing the success of Miller's The Dark Knight Returns, felt he had the best man to replace a departing legend like O'Neill. I should say, as an aside, Ralph Macchio is not the same person as the guy in The Karate Kid. Uh, they just have similar names. Not the same person. He asked Miller to return to Marvel to return to Daredevil. And Miller agreed, but on the condition that the assigned artist for Daredevil, David Masicelli, would work from Miller's full script. Macchio agreed. Daredevil, Born Again, was a success and published as a graphic novel a year later, much like Miller's The Dark Knight Returns. Miller and Masicelli had established a great rapport in print and were happy to collaborate again. Now, as part of the big DC reset, Batman Year One would bring Batman back to his origins by literally going back to his origins. He brought his DD born-again partner, David Masicelli, to the hallowed auspices of DC, as well as laying down a contract for Richmond Lewis, a colorist who just so happened to be Masicelli's wife. Now, Masicelli was born September 21st, 1960 in Providence, Rhode Island. He is chiefly known for his work in Batman Year One and Daredevil Born Again. 
He received a BFA from the Rhode Island School of Design and started work at Marvel in the early 80s, just around the same time as Miller worked on his initial Daredevil run. He did fill-in jobs and after Miller's departure provided regular work on Daredevil with Dennis O'Neill. His first experience with Batman was a contract job on World's Finest in April 1984. Following the success of Batman Year One and Daredevil Born Again, Masicelli worked on an angel story for Marvel fanfare and committed his own projects as well. Rubber Blanket was a three-issue anthology series co-edited by his wife, Richmond Lewis, and his art in Rubber Blanket influenced indie comic artists like Darwin Cook, Frank Santor, and Dash Shaw. He collaborated with Paul Karasak, including some of his own scripts on top of his own art with City of Glass, and his original graphic novel was published in 2009 called Asterius Polyp. Interesting name. It received mentioning as a notable book in the New York Times that very same year. The Los Angeles Times gave it its book prize for graphic novels. He also presented illustrations to The New Yorker and taught a course on cartooning at the School of Visual Arts in Manhattan. Going back to Batman Year One, from the get-go, it was intended to be a canonical Batman story that would be limited run of four issues. In other words, Miller fully intended to, for it to be a graphic novel. But Denny O'Neill was already trying to persuade Miller to take on Year One as an ongoing series. Miller was reluctant, but pressed forward. He aimed to keep the basics of Kane and Finger's origin story, only to expand on it further. Key events like the Wayne's murder and Bruce's pre-Batman globetrotting exploits that were adapted from other Batman tales in Christopher Nolan's film Batman Begins were left out with Year One beginning with Bruce returning to Gotham after his misadventures and learning experience. Miller also didn't want to portray a larger-than-life Batman. He chose to parallel Batman's rise with that of soon-to-be parent Lieutenant James Gordon, as he too battles the corruption of Gotham. Miller's love for realism and stylistic noir is present here. While Catwoman makes an embryonic appearance and the Joker is a name dropped, the noir influence is pursued further with the main villains being corrupt cops and the Falcone crime family. Mazzuccelli was in concert with Miller. He wanted Batman Year One to look and feel dark and grimy with muted colors. He uses muddy colors, for example, for the rendering of Gotham City, emphasizing the corruption that had overtaken it. When pressed to create a second volume, Miller ended up refusing, stating the four issues filled in a gap in Batman's past, and he was happy to contribute that. And he didn't want to interfere with past Batman continuity. Regardless, Batman Year Two was a thing and was released, but Miller was not involved. He would go on to work for DC and Marvel some more, as well as his, his own projects like his noir on steroids, Sin City, which he produced and co-directed into a feature film with Robert Rodriguez. He would direct his own film inspired by the old serial mass heroes of the Golden Age called The Spirit, but the film bombed both financially and critically. He even cameoed in the Daredevil movie starring Ben Affleck and Jennifer Garner, released by Fox in the 2000s. With his wife Lynn Varley as Inker, he produced 300, a graphic novel illustrating a hyperbolic depiction of the Battle of Thermopylae. It had a sequel called Xerxes, and both were adapted to films years later. But that said, with the growing influence of crime fiction and noir permeating his work, Miller's output grew more provocative in terms of violence and sex, with situations deemed by critics as misogynist and even homophobic. I'm not sure on the latter, but for the former, one could possibly read it that way. Batman Year One does not have a lot of female agency. Barbara we feel sorry for, but she doesn't have much of a voice. Essen is lacking depth. She's just a pretty woman, a distraction for Gordon. Um, a plot point, really. Catwoman arguably has some agency. And then we look at, you know, original Daredevil sweetheart, uh, former secretary Karen Page in the early days of the Daredevil comics. She was like his with will they, won't they? 
she leaves to, for a better life out west eventually. She leaves Matt and Daredevil and she disappears from the comics for like a decade or so. And then Miller brings her back in Daredevil Born Again and transforms her into a cracked out prostitute in Mexico, giving up Daredevil's identity for a fix. And such triggers the epic story that is Daredevil Born Again, wherein the Kingpin finds out who Daredevil really is. And let's just say it's a journey. Now, politically, Miller calls himself a libertarian. And given his work on Vigilante's Batman and Daredevil, who are outliers in their own comic book universes, this tracks. But Miller is never identified as a conservative. So despite these human contradictions, Miller remains a powerful, influential figure in the comic book industry. Batman Year One, as part of the DC Crisis on Infinite Earths reset, added to the 22% increase in sales for DC in 86-87. In fact, it beat Marvel in direct sales for the first time in August-September of 1987. As for Batman itself, its sales rocketed, still couldn't reach the heights of some Marvel titles like Uncanny X-Men, but Batman Year One was well-loved and gained critical acclaim for Miller's writing and Masicelli's artwork. The effect of Dark Knight Returns and Batman Year One in particular would attach itself to Batman's cape and propel the character to pulp culture stardom. In 1989, Warner Brothers released Tim Burton's Batman, followed by its sequel, Batman Returns. An animated series called Batman the Animated Series, of all things, launched in 1992 and for many is a beloved adaptation of these characters. We have famous arcs like The Long Halloween and Hush in the comics, not to mention the Nolan Batman trilogy, itself an interpretation of the Batman mythos. Further movie adaptations and TV series like Gotham also exist now. Some are good and some not so good. But Batman carries on to the present day. Role model, anti-hero, crusader, and guardian of Gotham City in various forms of media and is a permanent comic book fixture to the crime fiction and detective genre. Okay, nice work there, buddy. It's good to have that sure. context on uh, on Frank Miller and uh, and on the artist here with uh, Richmond Lewis and too. Batman in general, mm-hmm. and Batman in general, of course, yes. But um, yeah. I th- I'm guessing most of our listeners will have had a, a little bit more to to chew on with that than the Frank Miller or the Mazzucchelli or the Richmond Lewis stuff. But I, I yeah. found it interesting all the same. So uh, well done there. Absolutely, and I, I mentioned only briefly, you know. But um, in terms of like noir and detective fiction, some mm-hmm. people might know Frank Miller too from like mm-hmm. uh, he was the co-director of the Sin City movie by Robert Rodriguez. So, mm-hmm. because that was basically taking his comic book strip, his gra- his own graphic novel, Sin City, and adapting that to screen panel by panel, essentially. Mm-hmm. So, you know, people are familiar, you know, he is a big voice in the detective genre community outside of Batman and Daredevil. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm glad that you touched on that because I was very much a native coming to this stuff. Um, a native? Mm-hmm. No, that's not the right ex- expression at all. I was novice. very much a novice. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. You are the native. I'm the novice in this one. So yeah. nice, <laughs> uh, nice yeah. work. Native so I have, I like that. I have on the back of my enjoyment, I've put together a summary now, which I'll share with you and the listeners. It's about, I don't know, 15 minutes, I guess. I love myself a uh, Scott Powell literary summary. So I'm curious to see <laughs> how that works with Batman. It should be really interesting <laughs> okay. and, and surreal at the same time. So I'm down for well, this. Well, I hope, I hope I did it justice. Here we go.
As you might suggest from its title, Batman Year One is a four-part narrative broken down into 12 months of the first calendar year of Batman's life. In January, Lieutenant James Gordon arrives in Gotham City with his wife. He took the job because he needed more money with a family on the way. Gotham is not his idea of fun. Lieutenant Flass meets him and inducts him. He's a bent cop. He likes things his way. Police Commissioner Gillian Loeb, corrupt, nicotine, eucalyptus mints, meets with Gordon and tells him what's what. Meanwhile, Bruce Wayne returns to Gotham City in celebrity light. Rumors of high-profile romances, call girls, etc. follow him in his wake. The inheritor of the Wayne estate, he silently mourns the loss of his parents. We're treated only to glimpses of this trauma early on in the narrative. It's February. Flass and Gordon have different ideas about how to work the police beats. Gordon is tough, but he doesn't want to get rough. He's an honest man. He can see that Flass has had special training, Green Berets. Wayne, meanwhile, prepares physically for a revenge, but he needs to wait. It's vague, but he is patient. Lieutenant Flass reports to Loeb about Gordon's honesty and how he refused a bribe from a priest. He convinces Loeb that Gordon needs to learn how things are done properly. Commissioner Loeb agrees, but insists that it wait until he's out of town. Flass and his hoods, some other officers, work over Gordon in March, try to bully him into submission, then teach him a few things about police work in Gotham. They beat him only enough to keep him from hospital. Later in March, Gordon and Lieutenant Sarah Essen are spending a lot of time together, on the streets, in the office. A bond is building between the two of them. She, a young, attractive lieutenant, he, a soon-to-be middle-aged father. Bruce Wayne, meanwhile, wears a cosmetic scar and experiments with disguise. He changes his appearance so he can fit in better in the red-light, grotty district of Gotham. He is there in pursuit of his enemy, the crew responsible for his parents' death, but also crime more generally. He gets in a fight with a pimp and some prostitutes, too. He takes care of it, but gets injured and barely escapes. He chastises himself for being reckless. One of the working girls, Selina Kyle, watches the street from her window above, disgusted with the life she's in, and yet imprisoned by it. She has an affinity for felines. They surround her like apprentices. She also possesses notable martial arts skills. Hmm, we wonder where this is going. In her short scenes, we can't help but notice her righteousness and protective instincts. Watch this space. Wayne gets shot by police, who arrive at the scene. He's bleeding, but taken in cuffs away to a cruiser. He breaks free and crashes a car to escape, thinking about the officer's family all the while. He regrets having to have done that, returns home, and settles on his alter ego when a bat flies crashing through his window. It's all a bit serendipitous. He chooses that image for his disguise, because it frightened him as a boy, because it can frighten other people. The source of Wayne's childhood trauma is shown here more fully in vignettes of his parents' brutal death. The calendar turns over to April, and a standoff is dealt with expertly by Lieutenant Gordon when he drops his gun and enters an apartment held by an armed kidnapper. 
This episode helps strengthen his growing reputation as being legitimate about stopping Gotham's crime, and it also foreshadows something that will come later in the denouement. Gordon gets his revenge on Flass. He waits for a poker game to end, and then pounces. He beats Flass, using his own skills, to the exact same degree, far enough to not need hospital's treatment to teach a lesson. It's a return favor, one that will hopefully ensure that Gordon doesn't deal with anyone else's BS down at the station. Inwardly, Gordon fears the harshness of the world he and his wife stare at daily, and into which they are going to bring up a child. He's a restless, overthinking wreck in the evenings, but he shows toughness in the day. Meanwhile, Batman is developing a name for himself too. Although some cops and media are keen to label him a nuisance, Gordon finds his methods curious and deserving of study. Yes, he is committing assault across the city, but he's targeting criminals. The city's corrupt legislative body, however, steered by mob boss Carmine the Roman Falcone, Commissioner Loeb, and the mayor, are all chewing over the Batman problem. He's causing a disruption for some of the Romans' business, but a greater good might just rest in how Gotham's citizenry's morale seems to be returning, which encourages the upright to distract themselves once more with pleasure. Outside the mayor's mansion, Batman waits for his chance, overhearing a conversation about change and adjustment. Gordon is mentioned an awful lot, negatively, suggesting to Wayne that he could have an ally there. Calculating his moment, he hurls a smoke bomb into the dining room, breaking up the meeting with cacophony. May arrives, the spring, and under pressure from Commissioner Loeb, Lieutenant Gordon sets traps for Batman using Agent Essen as bait, but Batman, watching from the shadows, knows the game, and he doesn't bite. Chemistry between Gordon and his younger lieutenant thickens. June and July are busy months for our story. As summer draws closer, Batman is putting the pinch on the Roman, letting him know he's about and watching his behavior. Wayne goes pretty far in wind-ups, in fact, stealing his Rolls-Royce and tying him down in the night. Embarrassed at being toyed with, the Roman vows revenge. Half doing his job and half pursuing his own interest, Lieutenant Gordon visits D.A. Harvey Dent on suspicion of being Batman. He thinks Dent is just ambitious and passionate enough to take criminal prosecution into his own hands. Ultimately, though, he doubts Dent would be able to afford the arsenal of weapons possessed by Batman, and also he lacks the fighting techniques. Dent and Batman are allies, though, as we see through a humorous exchange where Dent tells Batman he can come out from under the desk now that Gordon is gone. The reason for their alliance is only vaguely suggested here, but as district attorney working to put criminals behind bars, Harvey Dent sees a potential working relationship, and as Batman, well, Wayne is dead set on better negotiating the criminal world to locate his parents' murderers. As they leave Dent's office, Gordon and Essen encounter Batman head-on in a near-miss traffic accident. Swerving to intercept an out-of-control van, Gordon notices the driver struggling, incapacitated, as his vehicle careens towards an old woman crossing the road. Sidling up to the van, Gordon jumps to grab its side and reach in to help the driver. It all happens in a flash. Batman is quicker, though, and swoops down to deliver her to safety. Gordon hits the road and falls unconscious, while Essen stops from the car and holds a gun to Gotham's number one target. 
Batman doesn't take long disabling her or disappearing. Knowing he saved that woman, and earlier gate-crashed the mobster dinner with a smoke bomb, Gordon's appeals are nevertheless shot down, and Commissioner Loeb calls in Brandon and his SWAT reinforcements to hunt down Batman. The gunfight echoes around as Bruce Wayne is forced into deeper recesses of the neighborhood's squats and derelicts. He soon turns the tables on the pursuing officers, managing to gain advantage, but suffers lacerations and bullet grazes. Using a high-frequency call, Batman conjures the power of his namesake from Wayne Manor across the city. Soon, waves of bats appear on the scene, giving Wayne the diversion he needs. While Commissioner Loeb chases a cloud of flying mammals across the city, Bruce Wayne steals a motorcycle and flees. He's injured, but alive. Lieutenants Gordon and Essen recover from their near miss, work late, and build a theory that Bruce Wayne, Gotham's richest playboy, should probably be considered a possible identity for Batman. Gordon starts digging around, but learns that Wayne is in Switzerland, glamorizing and womanizing. His cover story continues to work. Essen and Gordon, meanwhile, consummate finally their affair under the false protection of late nights and remits. None of Gordon's internal guilty voices succeed in suppressing his appetite for her. Predictably, as Barbara's pregnancy reaches its inevitable end, fights, late nights, and awkward distances lead to, well, more fights, late nights, and awkward distances. The self-fulfilling, all-consuming cycle of exhaustion, lust, and shame plays reruns in Gordon's home. It's August, towards the end of summer, and Selina Kyle puts finishing touches on her cat costume. She tests it out in the clear night, hopping from rooftop to rooftop. Just what is she playing at? Lieutenant Gordon's inner turmoil reaches its peak, and he struggles to reconcile two enormous matters. The first, how to make things right at home with his wife, be a better husband and father. The second, how to iron out the differences between himself and the Force with respect to Batman. He knows this vigilante is on the side of good, but he just can't bridge the gap between him and the corrupt powers that hold the strings. September, and Harvey Dent agrees to let top criminal Jefferson Skeevers out on bail. Gordon is furious, but understandably, he hasn't yet connected up that Batman might have a part in this plan, if he can catch him in the act. Cut to Batman hanging outside the Kingpin's window. He listens as Skeevers and his lawyer talk shop, revealing that Lieutenant Flass is doing his bit to keep Skeevers safe on the outside. Things change for him inside his own penthouse, though, when left alone with his lines of coke. Batman crashes in and, quote, shares his pain with Skeevers. Before long, one of the drug leader's cronies is before Gordon, wanting to cop a plea and talk about Lieutenant Flass. Batman scared the living daylights out of him and convinced him to rat out Flass. This is a huge win for Gordon and for Dent, and in the bigger picture, for Bruce Wayne. Flass had targeted Batman from day one, and getting this crooked cop off the force, behind bars, would help a lot to expose criminal creases in Gotham. Unfortunately, Commissioner Loeb isn't too happy. With Flass under investigation, his own malfeasance is closer to the lens. Loeb tries blackmailing Gordon with photos of he and Sarah. 
With the baby overdue, Gordon takes Barbara with him to visit Bruce Wayne. He's still looking for clarification about Wayne's whereabouts on the nights of so-and-so and specific altercations. Wayne, however, turns actor on very quickly and convincingly, pretending to be hungover while a pretty woman hangs over him on the couch. From the outside, even a little to Gordon, Wayne's cover story still sticks. Once they leave, Wayne and his butler, Alfred, discuss the scheme, complete with soda water for champagne, while inside the car, Gordon finally bears all to Barbara about his affair. It's October, and the pressure keeps cooking on and around Lieutenant Flass. Despite being held under suspicion, his unlawful arm is unnaturally long, and he nearly manages to have Skeevers poisoned before he can testify against him. Gordon's son is born on the 12th of October, around the same time that Selina Kyle's spate of cat burglaries against the rich starts picking up traction with the news. Commissioner Loeb is quick to blame Batman. This is a source of frustration for Selina, as she's desperate to be making a name for herself out there, straddling the moral boundaries in Gotham's darkened neighborhoods. She vows to make the Roman her next and biggest target. She promises to leave her calling card this time, a scratch across the face, something that just can't be mistaken as Batman by anyone in the press, and least of all by Carmine himself. But Batman is nearby, watching Falcone, and he ends up saving Selina's costumed hide when Carmine turns the tables on her. In the end, Selina gets her scratch before disappearing. November arrives, and Alfred is worried about his master. He doesn't think he's sleeping enough to be the best version of himself. Selina shares more irritation now as the news media have referred to her as Batman's assistant. From his convalescence, a furious, face-bandaged Falcon vows revenge and, unable to put the pinch on Batman or this new Catwoman, instructs Johnny, his nephew, to target Lieutenant Gordon's newborn son. The Roman gets Commissioner Loeb in on the gig, who calls Gordon away from home on a domestic grievance case early in the morning, leaving his family vulnerable. On his way in, Gordon passes a motorbike moving past him in the opposite direction on the road, headed towards his home. Trusting his instincts, he U-turns and gets back to the parking garage, but only in time to see Johnny holding a knife to his son in the back seat of a car. Barbara is being held as well, nearly forced into the car when Gordon arrives. He rolls the dice quickly, calculating that they'll all die if he lets them go. He starts shooting and catches one kidnapper in the shoulder and shoots the motorcyclist off the bike, then takes it in pursuit of the car himself. Barbara's left behind, safe but alone. The biker, despite taking a direct shot, crawls to his feet and convinces Barbara that he won't let her son die. It's Bruce Wayne, of course, but Barbara probably can't identify him. Or can she? In any event, she lets him go, and Wayne hops on a pedal bike in pursuit of both Gordon and the kidnappers. The chase doesn't get too far, as one of Gordon's bullets ruptures a tire in the car, and it swerves into the road bridge's railing. We see Bruce Wayne catch up and drop the bike, then ascend to a greater height. 
A brief struggle ensues between Gordon and Johnny, who perilously holds, then drops the baby over and down into the muddy ravine below. Anguished screams bellow out from deep within Gordon as he plummets over the edge in the fight. From above, however, Bruce Wayne has timed his own jump perfectly, saving baby James in time before hitting the ground. He presents the crying baby to his shaking father. Gordon lost his glasses in the melee, and he can't accurately identify this guardian angel. But, as sirens near, he encourages his ally to escape. As December closes in, surprises play out in the courtroom, when Lieutenant Flass, having spent only two weeks and five days in jail, turns all of his notes against Loeb over and finds a way of reducing his sentence. The commissioner keeps a brave face for the public, but he is negotiating terms of resignation behind the scenes. Lieutenant Gordon, meanwhile, has been promoted to captain, and the narrative ends with a short survey of his thoughts atop a snowy roof. His marriage is rebuilding slowly, and Sarah Essen has been transferred to New York, where she's doing well. A new threat looms in Gotham, a threat made against the city's water supply by some guy who calls himself the Joker. Gordon's collar is up against the cold. He lights a cigarette to keep warm, as his shadowy form is illuminated by a bright beacon. It's a signal sent and received. He is waiting for a friend who might be able to help. And thus ends Batman Year One by Frank Miller. Did you do it justice? I would say that is an understatement. <laughs> um, I just want to do more Batman graphic novels now in the future, just to hear your summaries, because that was awesome, man. That was. I'm glad really, you enjoyed really good. that. Good. Well, it was tricky. It was a bit different, wasn't it? Like you say, it's a little bit different format, a bit different medium we're bringing into the show here. But uh, yeah, I always enjoy doing the summaries, so I'm glad you got something out of that. It's time to light our pipes. Now, let me ask you, if I may be so frank, what type of pipe would Batman Bruce Wayne be smoking? Probably, well, we know the fact that he doesn't really drink and he carries club soda. So I'm assuming right, yeah. he'd be, he's vaping absolutely nothing. That's what I would assume. Okay. The, 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 right. the modern day right. Batman would probably be doing the fake vaping. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But um, <laughs> right. yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I, I don't think the, the neoclassical Batman or whatever you call him, I don't think he would, you know, want to be come off as a teetotaler in the sort of stylistic period they're trying to portray him in. Like, if you recall, you know, the uh, the Batman animated series by Bruce Timm, the one, mm-hmm. the one you know, that Warner Brothers did in the 90s, probably, in my opinion, one of the best Batman adaptations you can get. Um, they made it look like it's maybe the 40s or the 50s, but then they have, mm-hmm. like, computers and big TV screens and other types of technology, but then the villains have, like, Tommy guns and drive-in sedans, and there's just a... It's like... I, I think that's something that Tim Burton really did with his with, An, with Anton First's production design and, like, in Batman 89 and Batman Returns, that kind of gothic yet, re, yet modern feel that they kind of fuse together. So you always mm-hmm. get a... You always feel like, in a way, Batman is, like, in its own little pocket of time between, you know, like, the stylistic noir of the 40s, 50s 
in, and then into the modern age, whichever one you take him into. And I think maybe that just goes into how Batman can be interpreted in so many different ways, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I think you've nailed it. And, you know, in terms of that, I'm guessing there must be one episode, at least one episode of... Um of the campy Batman TV series where Adam West's Batman does smoke something or has a fake cigarette or a fake cigar. There must be, that's got to be going on in there. He probably calls it the bat cigarette or something like that. Mm -hmm. The bat smoke. (laughs) The The, bat bat smoke. Yeah. The bat reaper. Exactly. Don't, don't do drugs kids. And then dances. That's right. (laughs) With Catwoman. Yeah. Something like that. How come Batman doesn't dance anymore? I mean, Has anyone ever seen the Bat 2C? And then he does. That's a Simpsons reference for those uh, folks. I got it. Who, 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 who got it. I'm at the age now where people aren't getting my Simpsons references anymore. And I hate it so much. Oh, well, listen, man, that's just but where you we did, are now, Scott, unfortunately. You did. It's where I we did, are. Yeah. Think with the Simpsons. It's like 30 years, 30 plus years old now. It's crazy to think about it. I know. Almost as old as Batman. Well, mm, not quite. Not quite. That's crazy to think this character is almost 85 years old, huh? It's wild. Well, let's talk about this. Batman Year One. You've contextualized the piece for us. And uh, as always on Lighting the Pipes, our pipes are subdivided into five categories that we rate. We have a P for principles, an I Mm -hmm. for investigation, our second P for perpetrators. Then we have the E for environs and S for our supporting cast or secondary characters, if you prefer it that way. So let's start with the P for pipes, uh, our principles here, Josh. I went for a four overall, which I'm I'm not really sure. Okay, well, I'm not really sure how you saw it. But to me, this is really Gordon's story. It's not really Batman's or Bruce Wayne's. It's Gordon's. It's Gordon's, isn't it? Yeah. So I'm not wrong in that. And I'm I'm okay with that too, by the way. Like it, it's like to call in the comic Batman Year One. It's a bit misleading because it's more th- it's more like things going on around Bruce Wayne when Batman is activated. You know what I mean? Yeah. Despite that sentiment, though, I did review the principal category with Gordon and Batman as my subjects. So, so they I. they so are they are the principals. Good. Okay. Well, both men are tormented by things like one by the loss of his family, uh, his parents and his fight for good. But the other is by like his own demons and the guilt that's driving him to be better, a better person, a better cop, a better husband. He seems, Gordon at least, he seems to be on a crusade, which isn't always contextualized, I might add, in this first iteration. Yeah. But he does seem to be on a crusade to improve himself. Like if, if the Gotham job for him was an opportunity then, you know, in year one, we only see a bit of that transpire, don't we? Yeah, I feel that, like, I think one reason why I didn't give the principles full marks is because I wanted a little more on Gordon, even though we're given great Gordon stuff in this story, Mm -hmm. absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I immediately thought of, like, Nolan's, uh, sorry, well, Gary Oldman in the Dark Knight series, uh, just, just, that just bled off the page bled from the movie onto the page for me in this capacity, because I think Oldman captured this Gordon so well. But going back to the comic, though, um, I feel that, like, I wanted more about his situation in Chicago. Mm-hmm. I got the impression that he was a goody two-shoes cop, that, but he was kind of, we know Chicago is probably just as corrupt as, as Gotham. So obviously, he was transferred to Gotham, maybe as a punishment for being a goody two-shoes there, because he was clearly a crusader cop. But apparently he does have his own emotional issues unresolved that leads to problems like in his relationship, you know, with his wife and, of course, with his uh, extramarital relationship as mm-hmm. well, uh, 
coming from that. So I would have liked a little tiny bit more about Gordon's time in Chicago, uh, you know, and, and what his crusade was here. Because as soon as we were introduced to him, you know, he's uh, he's, he's taking he's, he's on the train, he's arriving in Gotham, and he makes the comment, you know, about how better to come by train to see Gotham as it really is, mm-hmm. r- rather than fly over it. And miss uh, it all. Where you yeah. see and miss it all. You, it's like flying over Manhattan, right? And seeing like, you know, Manhattan Island and the surrounding boroughs and capturing the vast greatness of New York. The same thing with Gotham, right? But what's interesting though is that that cross cuts with Bruce Wayne because he's, after being six years or more abroad, he's arriving back in Gotham ready to start his own his own mission. But he's, he's arriving by plane too, but he knows exactly what Gotham is all about because he experienced it. So, yeah. He, yeah. but all the other people going there, are they aware of it or are they just swallowed by the machine, you know? Mm. And Gordon mm. comes to Gotham. I think he's aware that, which is the nuance that I captured anyways, and I don't know if you did, but I feel that whatever he did in Chicago, uh, basically turning in corrupt cops, Someone up in the chain didn't like that, and so they mm-hmm. transferred him to Gotham, probably so that it would eat him alive, if you think about it. Yeah, it did, it did kind of suggest to me that he has not just taken a job for an opportunity to improve his station, but he has been not not kicked out, but almost Excellent. like exiled good word yeah now we don't know that and again shortcomings in the scoring here might be a bit unfair because it is intended to be year one and that's always something i grappled with in scoring this one like the the story doesn't pretend to tell you everything it doesn't need to it isn't that's not its modus operandi is to reveal everything it's very much holding things back so we can explore them in further installments but yeah there was a sense of exile here which perhaps the character had turned in his own mind to be an opportunity right but why would you be why would you choose to go here like what's what's the motivation in that you know like that's like yeah. some self that's some that's some self um masochistic stuff you know yeah now you could also be you could also look at it from another side of the coin is that his superiors because he did such a good job cleaning up corruption in chicago in his department Maybe he was sent to Gotham to clean that up, possibly. Yeah, yeah, maybe but so. But I feel more the fact that they just transferred him to get rid of him because they probably didn't want him in the department because he was poking his nose in where he shouldn't, mm-hmm. you know? There's, you know, and, 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 and it just probably just seemed like it was more of the better solution to get rid of him in a way. And, and you know what? Maybe he could do good in Gotham. Who knows? But Gotham yeah. is yeah. in a bit of a state when he gets there, right? Like the only, besides Batman arriving, the only hope in Gotham uh, right now is Harvey Dent, which is incredibly right. ironic, yeah. you know, given <laughs> what, a, what a two-faced Harvey Dent ends up becoming. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Pardon the pun. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I, I guess we saw them the same way, didn't we, the principals here? <clears throat> I mean, Bruce yeah. Wayne, it would, it would have been nice to get a bit more about the family side of things there too. Um, and I guess or that's Alfred. also... It kind of bleeds into the, yeah, or Alfred, it bleeds in a bit to the investigation. One of the gripes I had with the investigation is just how little about Wayne's childhood trauma we get into. So his motivation to become a a crime fighter, to become, and I don't really think that was his motivation at the start. It's just kind of revenge, his vengeful point that isn't really developed as much as I would like to see, although we do have a few glimpses of it. But uh, yeah, I think a four is a very generous mark. Yeah. Like, we get glimpses of it for Batman in the sense of, like, you know, the in terms of, like, 
the dramaticness of the situation, you know, like where, you know, he recalls him going to see the Mark of Zorro with his parents and then Joe Chill killing his parents. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, Mm -hmm. you know, we get that whole lovely, that excellently colored sequence uh, by Richmond Lewis there uh, with just like the yellows and then the bat appearing to him in the chair, you know, where he gets the idea of of using a bat to become as the symbolic fear, you know, that he wants to bring to the Gotham underworld. We get those dramatics, but see, those are very, those are things that we already know about the Batman mythos. So the, so the book just kind of, I think in a way when they, how they wrote it is they, they, they knew what, because this was a reboot in a sense of the Batman character from the beginning, because that's what DC was doing at the time in the eighties is what I was talking about in my, uh, in my whole, you know, breakdown. Mm -hmm. If I were to t- look at this as a, as a singular story on its own, there definitely could have been maybe a couple more pages, a couple more panels with the development of Batman, his background and whatnot in this in the story. But I think the writing takes takes for granted or assumes anyways that the Batman mythos is well known and maybe that's why the focus is more on Gordon. It's an it's 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 a choice that you know the writer had to make, and b- before he left, Gordano, the editor, had to make you know and how they wanted to develop the story, and I, I can see that as someone like you who you know who's just kind of getting into the idea of Batman, just as someone on the outside you know who's not really invested in the comic book world as say I am, for example, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. how you can see how it's a little it's lacking a little bit on the Batman part because I think if. If you look at it in a, as a separate text, if the Batman stuff was a little stronger, I think this could have been a five out of five category, in my opinion. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. I'm with you there. I agree. Yeah. I okay. got to where I'm well, going eventually, and that's all that matters. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, as for investigation, what did you do there? What did you think? Uh, investi- investigation, I did not give full marks. I don't know if I was as. I, I, now, whether you were as generous as me, I don't know. There have I had a couple of flaws with the story, but they weren't enough for me to uh, not really appreciate it and praise it in the way that I did. I gave it four and a half out of five. Okay. Wow. Well, you were a full point ahead of me. Why don't you just briefly, briefly take me through your near perfect score and then I'll share with you my ideas. Okay. Well, this is what I kind of got down here. So I love the parallel of Batman and Gordon in this tale. Um, Gordon arrives in Gotham already wary, and he, he too is corrupted by its evil. The hero caught may not be on the take, but he has the weakness of most men being put between a pregnant wife and all the hard work and his own sense of duty that would entail that with the, with the temptation of an attractive partner. Meanwhile, Batman does not drink. He has no attachments other than Alfred. His superficial relationships playing on, you know, this playboy persona, but he's solely focused on becoming the Batman. Uh, the main corruption in all the high places storyline of year one works for the most part. We get name drops and what we can what can be seen as Miller ticking the boxes he needs to for the Batman mythos. We got a young pre-acid facial Harvey Dent as the only man besides Gordon who really cares. We got the Falcone family, uh, the Roman and his nephew Johnny, uh, who works with the mayor. And then we got Commissioner Gillian Loeb and all the way down the chain of command to keep the fires of the unholy corrupt monster that is Gotham burning. You know what I mean? Like either the evil machine. Yeah, the Gotham rabble. Yeah, exactly. The inclusion of Selina Kyle provides us another element of the Batman mythos. We Mm -hmm. first meet her in the lowest dregs of the underworld and see that world through her perspective. But it still feels a little ham-fisted and fan-servicey into the story. But 
it works for the most part. Um, it's a Batman origin tale after all. Um, Batman and Gordon, they pushed the corrupt system so far that they kidnap Gordon's own family and to do, and to fail doing so sets up the resignation of Loeb, but the system's evil heart keeps beating and Batman and Gordon are needed for the long run. And the story, you know, justifies that the main story is almost airtight in my opinion. And, and to be honest, <coughs> it's the extra scripting and nuance because you have like the, the comic, you have like the script, which is. The, the, the outline, the story, the dialogue that Frank Miller came up with. And then you have Mazzuchelli's uh, detailed artwork, which provides its own extra scripting and nuance. So you have to consider how artwork, in terms of like reviewing it, I think it informs both the investigation mm-hmm. category of our scoring. Yeah, it but definitely also does. Inform, it also informs the, the environs of, um, of our story as well. Which is, of course, a very unique feature of these, this particular review is that we've done nothing really like this before. Even though we've done some film reviews before, yeah. we haven't used this type of scoring for it, have we? <clears throat> exactly. It serves the atmosphere side of things, right? It, which mm-hmm, is mm-hmm. part of the language and style of the comic medium. Um, mm-hmm. Mazzuchelli's detailed panels, they work beautifully along with Miller's bare bones plotting. Um, it's, it's like the best noir director and cinematographer working together. That's kind of how I feel about that combo and what they brought to the writing and the storytelling. And you get some great examples of this kind of writing. Um, I think one of my favorite panels, it's, it's not like one, it's not a big violent or, you know, exciting dramatic panel, but it's the one here. I'm just going to find it really quick here. Give me a second. I'm going to find it here. Yeah. So. Uh, it's it's the June 9th, uh, it's the first panel for the June 9th section of the story. And it's the one where Gordon is sitting at his desk in his office. And then you have Essen, who is like legs crossed, sitting on the edge of his desk, right? You have, you know, like uh, Gordon's uh, voiceover, so to speak, through Miller's writing. And you have Gordon sitting at his desk. He's holding his world's greatest dad's mug, right? Mm-hmm, and... Mm-hmm. It's a bright scene. The light is on and you see a picture of Barbara on his desk and then Essence sitting there kind of somewhat seductively with her legs and whatnot in that picture. And to me, like the script is telling us one thing through Gordon's perspective, and that's the writing that Miller has to do so. But Mazzuchelli and Miller have to work together in the panels to also bring nuance in a different way. In the same way a film director would do with a cinematographer and with a screenwriter, you know? And mm-hmm. I just think the fact, like the ironic counterpoint of Gordon at his desk with, you know, this world's greatest dad mug, and then Barbara showing, you know, on the surface, this is what he's devoted to, but he also has his own demons as well. And that's clearly represented by Essen sitting on the edge of the desk, right? It's the stress yeah, that's of cool. the job that's and the cool. temptation. It's just it's little details like that, that really kind of pull me into the story. And that makes me really appreciate the writing intermixed, you know, with, with the penciling, which works with the writing in tandem to tell the story. So cool. that's an example that, that I wanted to give. Um, mm-hmm. I wish some characters were fleshed out a little bit, like Loeb, for example, and the Roman, but I guess we'll go into, you know, that with the perpetrators. Yeah. Um, yeah. In terms of like the female characters, they're not fleshed out enough for sure. Uh, Barbara, Essen, even Selena uh, and Holly, Selena's girl, uh, you know, those women, you know, they're prey to the evils of Gotham's corrupt. They're victims in their own way, despite Miller kind of trying to give them some sort of agency in the story. But really, they're just sort of like something for the male characters to react to. And as we know, and as I talked about, 
Miller gets accused in later in his career, particularly with Sin City and onwards, of showing a lot of misogyny and homophobia mm-hmm. in writing, but mm-hmm. misogyny in particular. And you kind of feel, you know, Gotham is definitely a misogynistic place. But I think there could have been writing that could balance that out a little bit more. So sometimes I feel like my my rating of four and a half out of five is a little generous because there is so much of this of this story that I love and how much and how it was written and how it was drawn. But thematically, I, I do see flaws that I just don't enjoy about the story that could have been approved on, in my opinion. But I'll stay with my four and a half out of five in this case. I do want to, though, uh, hear your opinion on the story, particularly interesting because I want to see how, you know, how you perceive mm-hmm. a story, you know, told through a different medium, uh, something that we're used to and seeing, you know, in a novelized fashion. Well, I, I did grapple all the way through this project with, or this particular episode with kind of how I was going to reconcile the fact that this is year one. This is not a comic probably that has been produced for the general reader because it's a comic that is telling the story of an already known character. And for that reason, like I, I was always concerned that my scoring, but the things I wasn't seeing, the things I wasn't getting was being a bit harsh, but I'll take you through it anyway. Like, please. So as I said earlier, the fact that we don't really know a lot about Wayne's childhood trauma is, is a problem for me. There are no specifics shared in this episode of, or in this particular volume about his parents' death. And I don't mean like the killer's names or the location or anything, but if I am meant to believe that entering Gotham's criminal world as a good guy is Batman's plan years after this event, then surely a few leads or a few threads to hang on and to Mm. pursue are kind of needed. Otherwise, he could just be a vigilante going in there. Like, the guy is just flying blind into the city this way and hoping that Gordon is going to hook him up with the resources and the connections to find the guys from years ago. Either that or, like, what? He's going to follow his nose for a fatalistically Mm. predetermined period of time before he just serendipitously is gifted the killers and he gets his revenge that way? I don't know. Yeah. Like, on the other hand, though, if Wayne uses his parents' death as the motivation to rid Gotham of crime, in which case the impulse is less selfish and more community-oriented, then that needs to be fleshed out because, like, I don't mind a bit of vagueness, but a little bit too much was left off the pages here. Like, I think that in their quest to ramp up the darkness of the Dark Knight, Miller and... Mazzuccelli here, what they've done is they've neglected to, for the benefit of the general reader, characterize. And Mm. I just don't think Wayne's motivations are entirely clear here. There's a few shadowy references and images and panels, but that's not enough to describe the moral compass, nor why getting revenge is actually important to him in the first place. Like, I get that fanboys and previous readers and you know, fanatics will say, well, just because that's Batman, go with it. But I think that the IP is deserving of a bit more backstory for the average Joe here. than what I feel you. You know what I mean? Yeah. I was surprised, honestly, actually, when I read Batman Year One for the first time, which was actually, I read it with you, actually. I never read Batman Year One before. Um, mm. But this was, I read The Dark Knight Returns years and years mm-hmm. ago. But Batman Year One is like my second real reading of uh Batman in comic book form. Mm. Yeah. Like, I was really surprised because uh, Batman Begins, which is the first Nolan film, does have that whole backstory 
mm-hmm. about, you know, how after he goes, after his parents are killed and he goes to college, he decides, you know, to get away from it all. He goes to college and he leaves and goes to China. And then that's when he meets like, you know, Raj al Ghul and trains as a ninja and an assassin. And that's he right. has a whole yeah. storyline yeah. where he comes back to Gotham afterwards. And I mm-hmm. think that is, and the whole idea of like, where Raj al Ghul in the film is telling Bond, is telling Bond, wow, is telling <laughs> Batman, uh, Bruce Wayne, like, vengeance, like, like, vengeance is the only way to stop criminality. It's not, it, the system cannot be based on justice because no, because the system is, because systems, all cities and systems are corrupt mm-hmm. and therefore vengeance is the only way to do things. Yeah, and so there's yeah. a moment where Bruce Wayne's character is told to execute this peasant for killing a man because he was fighting over his farm or something. And Bruce won't kill the man. He won't execute him because that's for the system to decide, not him, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what he decides to do is that, you know, he's going to fight crime, but he's not going to take life. You know, he's, he doesn't believe himself mm-hmm. as yeah. judge, yeah. jury, executioner. My whole point is, though, is that this is what Batman comes back to when he returns to Gotham after these years and years of being away. He returns to Gotham with this mission and... The same way that Gordon arrives at the beginning of this story in year one. And I just feel like I was surprised that that part of the storyline was not present in Batman year one and must have been extrapolated, you know, from another comic book storyline of Batman instead. Later down the road, and they just yeah. kind of, they, they, they blended them together, I suppose, in, in uh, that sense. Yeah. So, I, and, and that's what I think this book was missing was a few more pages about what Batman was doing before then. And what his mission, what his goals really are. We're not sure. Is he just inventing his parents and and using that as a way, his own personal vengeance and believing himself to be a crusader in that sense? Mm -hmm. Or is he actually doing it for the good of the community? And he feels because Gotham is so corrupt, this is the only way to do it. Because it shows that he does want to work with people. He wants to work with Harvey Dent. Which he's which which he starts doing mm-hmm. um, as the story <laughs> yeah. seems to indicate. It's hiding under his desk, yeah, 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 exactly. But he also wants to work with you know uh, Gordon because Gordon's the guy that's pissing off all the big names in Gotham. So that's right. Yeah, it, it, it shows that he's willing to work with people to get the job done, and that's not all about his ego. But it's still very vague, and I think this. I think the writing needed that a little bit more to stand mm-hmm. alone as like its own as, as its own great story. Yeah, so totally. that's where I, that, that, that's how I felt about it anyway. Yeah. Okay. Well, you gushed a bit more, but I think we're basically saying the same thing. The shortcoming struck me more as a, a as more of a, a reader not used to the medium the same way that you are. So, or the character, I think is fair to say too. I think you're more of a, a bat head than I am. But um, anyway, moving so, on to. So, so you're a three and a half out of five? I'm three and a half. I was your... Yeah. I was a three okay. and a half. Yeah. But like okay. I said at the outset of this, buddy, I, I do feel bad about some of these because I don't know it's right. Uh, well, right. It's not the right word. I don't know that it's appropriate in context, Batman year one, to highlight the shortcomings when we know they're going to be revealed else, you know? Like, maybe this is just a snapshot of things going on around Bruce Wayne during that time. And that's also yeah. a, point, a point that I raised before, but let, let's just move away from this into the uh, the perpetrators. I won't take long on this at all because this is a coming out party for Gotham City. The rogues gallery of villains and minor accomplices serves to illustrate the depth of Gotham's depravity. Everybody would agree with that. The need for a yeah. cop hero duo like Gordon and Batman is is uh, fairly evident from the get-go here. The broken cops, the broken criminals, you know, the idea, yes. which 
pulls us back to the investigation, it's clear that the purpose of this volume is to bring our two characters together, Wayne and Gordon, and the perpetrators both on the streets and in the offices do that. There's corporate law being broken. There's law on the street being broken. You know, it's different environments, interior and exterior, good, bad, office, street, like there's criminals all over this place. So you need a guy that's on the streets and you need a guy that can spot it in the offices as well. So we got Commissioner Loeb, like you said, the kingpin type character, the crook. Then you got Lieutenant Flass, who's a corrupt bent cop entitled and he's on the fast track for himself. The Roman, eh, it would have been nice to see a bit more of him because I know he he plays a big part in, in the, the comics. Bell, Bell, Falcone's big, yeah. Falcone, yeah. About the villains, <clears throat> what's interesting about the villains too is that like in this story, we're not introduced to like the rogues gallery. Like there's only a mention of the Joker at the very end. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. this story decides to tackle t- typical detective uh, police fiction. I guess it goes more for a procedural feeling where in the sense of that we're going after corruption. Um, Definitely you know, when Jefferson being, Skeevers well, enters the plot, it does. Yes. Yeah. F- flawed human beings being corrupted by a system that is already corrupted. Mm-hmm. And that just shows the obstacle that that, you know, Wayne and Gordon have to surmount, right? Because there's a great line in Batman Begins about how, like, about escalation. And Gordon tells Batman on the rooftop, he says, like, well, if the vigilantes are going to have, you know, big gadgets and and all this stuff and get stronger and get more theatrical, then so will the villains, right? They're going to escalate. And that's how, believably, you get, you know, the Batman rogues gallery eventually. Like, well, you have a guy dressed as a bat terrifying human, terrifying the criminal underworld. Well, now we're going to have, you know... A crazy guy in clown makeup, a guy who looks like a penguin, a scarecrow, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> you know, the villains are going to get more wild and, and crazier because of that. But starting out, we get the basic villains. We get the gangsters and corrupt cops and corrupt politicians. Mm-hmm. And I, I, think that was a, I think that was a good choice for the story. Yeah, it didn't go crazy town. And even with Selena, who I know is more of a straddling character on, on the boundary of good and bad, but even yeah. Catwoman who isn't fully developed as such in this story, she is seen first and foremost as a, a twisted sort of street figure herself. So we're not getting, yeah. we're not getting the, the hyperbolic, as you say, the Joker, the Riddler, we're getting the, the crooks and the people who are closer to the type of crime caused, which caused Wayne's parents' death in the first place. Right. And which enabled it. Yeah, the corruption just runs so deep into the system, mm-hmm. right? Like, that's mm-hmm. the big bad. And it does show that. About it. Like, the perpetrators do demonstrate that. So I went I went for a four out of five. Uh, I would like to have seen a few more scenes where the Roman and his nephew were involved because they play a big part in the end. And I didn't yes. really see that coming out. So that plus, I guess, the fact that Lieutenant Flass... Um, turn state evidence i found that that was and brandon yeah that brandon where the hell did he come out like brandon i didn't really get a feel for him at all i had to keep looking back yeah to see where brandon came out of he's obviously just one of Loeb's buddies yeah just a psychotic swat team captain basically so anyway i went four which is a strong mark strong mark i was four as well okay well if um if we can push on then well let's talk about environs uh all the yeah. seasons here feel the same to me. It's dark, dark, dark. Like, I know it's a year in Gotham City, but Gotham City feels like it's, you know, Mr. Burns's, to get back to the, uh, get back to the Simpsons, <laughs> it's Mr. Mr. Burns's dome, you know? Like, it, there are touches yeah. of snow and weather in this, but the overwhelming I, I, I impression. I love the drawing of the snow. The mm-hmm. snow looked really great yeah. when it was there. Like, 
It, it was almost slushy, like unrealistic. Gross. Yeah, yeah. but yeah, slushy. Yeah. At the end, um, I don't really think either script nor artwork reveals Wayne to other characters, and I liked that a lot. I felt like environmentally, it's good that no one else knows who he is at this early stage, yeah. and I think that's what a year one story should be. It should just be kind of keeping, you know, the character away from being detected, and I liked that. Uh, there's some suspicion, I know, but by the time... By the time that Gordon and his wife go to the house, he's kind of erased that suspicion, you know? Um, exactly. As for scoring the environment, I mean, I have to lean heavily into the artwork, uh, realistically. Yeah. The scene where Loeb sends the SWAT team in to eradicate Batman, um, that to me wasn't clear or terribly engaging. And when I say it wasn't clear, I mean, it wasn't cleanly drawn for me. I had to read it a couple of different times. Like the paneling yeah. was a bit complex and disjointed. I'm wondering if Mazzuccelli was opting for like a cinematic editing sort of shot type, multiple angles thing. I feel that compared to the to other boost. stories. Yeah. I think so, like yeah. He, I, it's almost like, you know, in some in other parts of the book, the paneling was done almost like as if he was doing like an older film, for example, mm -hmm, kind mm -hmm. of style, right? Very noir. And then all of a sudden, like we get like this action sequence from like a 90s or right, 2000s yeah, film. Totally. You know? And, and it's the and action it bit, scenes uh, that are like it that. It was too long, too. Too long, yeah. I, th I found that sequence. Yeah. yeah. And instead of punctuating those action points, Josh, like I find that, well, I found at least that it muddied the scene a little bit because... Well, because I, I guess you, you combine it with the fact that a lot of the colors here are thematic colors, grays and maroons and browns and oranges. Oversaturation. Like, it, yeah. it just makes for a really murky recipe. But then you had the contrast, like the office scenes I thought were colored really clearly. And in the case of Essence and the affair with Gordon, I thought that was really a, a skilled decision because, you know, her hair is so bright in contrast to the darkness of the city. Her blouse yes. is bright blue, which is obviously like uh, this, this, this brightness for Gordon in, in, in amongst all the darkness, the corruption that he's dealing. Like she is a, a beacon of, of, of lust. Yes. But she's also an escape. She's, she's a, mm -hmm. she, she's something he wants to go to. And I get why the shades are like that because the pregnancy, of Barbara and the stress at home and all of that. Like, I like the way that relationship is colored. I think that was really clever. And so there's definitely some skilled decisions going on here, but the high contrast doesn't feature as much as I would like it to. It's just very dark to watch, to read, to explore, and to absorb. I get why the darkness and the shades are persisting in the story from a thematic point of view. I just kind of wish that the world would be in some way for these characters a bit brighter and batman fans listening of, to this would oppressive. be yeah would, would be saying <laughs> no but that's what makes it important i get i get that but for me you know scott on the road picking up the book wanting to just read it yeah i'd like to see a bit more color into this one but you know having said that three and a half it's it's not a bad mark it's a little lower i guess for for the artwork itself, which is very skilled, the expression, like, I mean, I'm, I'm now judging the pictures themselves, the, the drawings, the faces, yeah. the, the decision to focus on a hand or a bracelet or, you know, or to cut away and to give you a medium shot or, a, or an establishing shot. Like, all of those decisions are great. There's some high angle illustrations here, which are really powerful from 
a domestic point of view, you know, but I thought the action itself was, I didn't like the action scenes, the way they were drawn in the story. I felt I would have liked a broader scope, a broader vista for the action instead of the close up of a cat jumping on you or a twisted canted angle mm -hmm. of a, an ankle being broken or, do you know what I mean? I just felt like there was some decisions that took me out of the action scenes and I found them quite complex, but there's incredible skill here. There's no way to say there isn't, but for me, three and a half feels right. Okay, no problem. Um, on this one here, I was wavering, like, because uh, there's a lot of, I, I love a lot of stuff in this. Like, I love the use, I love the noir panels, as I said. Um, I think Maz's, I think Mazzicelli's artwork, like the use of shadow and light, uh, using little details to create ironic counterpoint in the scenes next to Miller's script. I talked about that earlier. Um, mm -hmm. I liked how Richmond Lewis's coloring, how she oversaturated the tints and tones to, to overwhelm the panel with this crackling intensity that just captures the dramatic moments so well. Like, it's over the top, it's Batman, and that's its style. And as a Batman fan, like, you know, that's my jam. Like, that's sure. my Batman, and <laughs> that's, right. that's the yeah, way I yeah, like yeah. my Batman. And like, yeah. it's gritty and dark, but it's brave and bold. But I, but I do agree with you, though. Like, the one sequence that I didn't really love too much was the SWAT sequence. I found this scene on the bridge with like the Gordon's mm. baby and mm -hmm. all that stuff. Like that was, that, that was paneled well, like in action terms as well as coloring terms. Like it just fit the scene mm -hmm. perfectly. Yeah. I loved it when Bruce goes to the red, to the red light district and you get that, that pink kind of oversaturation in those sequences, like the neon, just, just like overwhelming the, the panels. I thought that worked really well to create the mood and imagine yeah, being sure. poor it Selena did. Kyle, like, in her apartment and just having that pink in your face all the time. I mean, it's almost like a depiction of hell on earth, if you think about it. Yeah, um, very much so. And I liked how, for example, like when Gordon arrives in Gotham on the train, uh, on the elevated train there, it's like, you, you see all the details of the train and everything, but it's, everything is all rust. It looks like it's so rusty and mm -hmm. dilapidated. You know, dilapidated and stuff. And those details, I think, are really good. But at the same time, I do agree that there could have been some kind of contrast. They do do that in the essence sequences. Yeah, I, I thought it was a brilliant choice if you think about it in the Barbara sequences at the at Gordon's apartment. There's a neutrality to the colors. There's mm -hmm. both brightness and the darkness. Mm -hmm. That you get some of that brightness from Essen because this is his family. This is his life. But there's also more shadows, and even though there's color in certain things, like. There's the color on the Mickey Mouse phone, well, because he's a dad now, right? So you're gonna that's gonna stick out. So thematically, you know, they were doing a good job. Yeah, I would say that it's. I think a lot of some of the issues I would have with like the the environs in this story come from Richard Lewis's coloring because I think having all this fire and explosions and mm -hmm. incoherency in that SWAT sequence, I think that kind of stands out and is more noticeable as, as being not a great choice. Uh, Lewis has other great choices in, throughout the comic book there that stand out really well, as I mentioned. But if you could just take out her coloring and just have, you know, Maz's artwork and Miller's writing, I think, you know, like, it might have been a bit better if they did that as opposed to coloring it. Like, I think black and white might have actually worked better for it overall. Interesting. But, yeah. Like, cool. I'm going to give it... Like I want to give it a five out of five because I love it so much because I, I I really enjoy it. But on a critical level, I'm at four and a half out of five. Okay, well that brings us to our final category: our supporting players. Uh, I'm going to be 
uh, I'm going to be really quick with this one. We've got a great set of supporting characters. We've got Barbara, who is present enough in the story, but she's kind of written to be a foil. And I'm not even sure I'm using that term the way I want to be, but she feels that way to me. And I don't really like that. She's an obstacle for Gordon instead of an ally in this in this year one anyway like she's a source of guilt for him she's torturing him at home she's not actively but he's imagining that like that when the torments of work aren't enough she's there to torment him and i don't think that writes her well i don't know like we get that scene where she's cooking for him and giving him a massage but there's not a ton of together time in the story we don't really get to see barbara at her best he doesn't confide in her right no he doesn't he doesn't at all and it's it's ironic given the opening panels where she was to be a big motivator in the move. You know, she was a reason for the move to Gotham, the new job and all of that. Um, Sarah Essen as a love interest is interesting. Uh, It's a predictable fling that's brought on by predictable conditions at work, right? Plus the younger agent, older mentor thing, the marital stress adds to Gordon's arc. I get all of that. I like that just fine. Selena Kyle is underwritten for me. She's present, but she's not really present. Like her character obviously has a good lot to do with the Batman world, but it's really just introduced here. I think that's okay. Like she doesn't need to be in it a ton, but it would be good to learn a bit about where she came from. Why is she ripping the heads off dolls and stuffing things into them? Like what's what's going on here with Matsukeli's artwork and how does that has that contributing to her story? Like, I don't get a lot of explanation for why she's living in grime and, you know, peddling drugs or whatever she's doing there with the dolls. Like, that's not really making much sense. Yeah. Like, there's no impression of her younger life anywhere on the page for me, Josh. Like, she's a preformed adult vigilante. Like, am I wanting a lot more? No. Maybe, I don't know, but I'm, I'm, I'm treating this more like a short story than a novel. Do you know what I mean? As I review it. So, Yeah. I, I, I kind of feel that way. With Selena, though, like, they do imply, though, I think that she was a prostitute at the time yes, of the story. Yes, they do. Yeah. Because yeah. they show her, like, punching out her pimp and then yep, running off right. with Holly, right? And defending so, the other one, yeah. Yeah, exactly. The problem with, with Catwoman in this story is that the story is set up to counterpoint between, Gort, to uh, you know, parallel between Gordon and Batman, Bruce Wayne, and mm-hmm. not Selena mm-hmm. Kyle. So when yeah. she's inserted into the story, it feels like, oh, Okay, well, this is about oh, Catwoman's in this yep. now too. Good point. And yep. that creates uh, that creates an, another expectation, but then mm-hmm. it also, to me, kind of it's, it's a little it's a little bit too much. You know, it's, it's fan servicey in, mm-hmm. in that. Yeah, but, that's but a good I, way to But I get it. why they. I get why they did it. But then you mm-hmm. think of Dent. I mean, Dent, a pre-Two-Face Dent is obviously fan servicey as well. It is. But, yep. but it works in the story. Yes, it does. That's it works thing. in the story. He's got plot agency in a way that the other one doesn't. The other one has plot agency by receiving a reputation from Batman that's assumed, not from doing anything. And I think it's neat that we see Dent as an ally and we sense a bigger character to be revealed later on. I just, I think the strokes on all of the female characters in the story are a bit weak. But I went for three and a half on the I was there characters. too. Interesting. I wanted more Elford. I wanted more Elford. I think that could have been mm. a big help to Batman's storyline in that too. Yeah. It's good like point. if we had more Elford, yep. more Batman yep. discussing his feelings, talking, like we get him, him you know, we get a little bit Elford yeah. making his usual man in the chair kind of snarky comments as he goes mm-hmm. along, right? Mm-hmm. But it's just like I just wanted a little bit more, you know, mm-hmm. from that. And again, that comes from people, well, it's Batman, it's Elford. I think. Maybe Miller and Co. just kind of assumed a bit too much on how much, you know, as a singular story, how much we needed a little bit of more Batman in there too, and and his motivations in order to uh, tell the story uh, better than it already has been told in that sense, you know. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I'll stick with my three and a half. 
All right, buddy. Well, the scores are in for Batman Year One by Frank Miller, uh, Matzikel- David Matzikelli, and uh, Richmond Lewis. And you're at a 20.5 out of 25, and I am at an 18.5. So I was really pleased that you brought this one in, um, as I said a couple times already this episode, but very fun. This was fun to do this. And I think maybe later down the road, we've got a lot of reading set up for this year. I think later down the road, yeah. maybe we maybe we return to a different graphic novel, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And continuing with Batman Year One, um, I understand The Long Halloween, which was made years later, mm-hmm. kind of deals with elements from Batman Year One, uh, cool. particularly like or Harvey Dent and whatnot. And uh, that's one, one that we can definitely check out. Or there's other comic book titles we can yeah. check out too. You know, who knows? Superb. Well, what do we got coming up next on Lighting the Pipes, my friend? El Tapino Wire is on the way. It's going to be Edgar Ulmer's Detour. That is coming very, very soon. Awesome. And after that, we're going to be reading the first Smiley novel, aren't we? By John Le Carre, yeah. Call for the Dead. Looking forward to Call that one. Call for the Dead. Yeah. And then we have awesome. others lined up after that, too, which will be pretty exciting, I think. Thanks, everybody, for, for listening and checking out the episode. We hope you've enjoyed this. You remember, you can catch us on the socials. You can find us at uh, pipes underscore pod on Instagram or email us at lightingpipes at gmail.com. Reach myself or Josh there. Let us know how you're feeling about the show. If anything you'd like us to review or read, then we'll add it to our list. If you could give us a review online that would help others find the show, then please share that. We'd really appreciate it. Cheers. It's been fun as always. So thank you once again, and we'll see you back here soon. Take care. Bye-bye.